past year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's a very quiet area. Horrific shade of yellow. Still in New York City. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now, we get to listen in. In this episode, The New Heroines. Actress Kira Knightley connects with Lulu Wong, director of the critically acclaimed movie The Farewell. The conversation was led by producer and writer Diane Solway. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to hell and back just to find peace. Welcome, Kira and Lulu. It's great to be talking to you today. I am currently sitting in my home in New York. What about the two of you? Where are you? Oh, we're being so female and we're waiting for each other to speak. (laughs) (laughs) There is no dude that would do this. (laughs) Lulu, you go first. It's 8 a.m. over here, so that that was my hesitation only. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles right now. I'm in a rental, but we're in the middle of moving. So this is literally our moving week. Uh, So there's boxes everywhere. Kira, what about you? I'm in London. I'm in my spare room, which is a horrific shade of yellow, which was my idea. (laughs) And I really, really want to paint it now, having spent such a long time in lockdown. And it, too, has many boxes. So... It's the joys of working from home. Lulu, I know you, um, you're you moving into a house with your partner, Barry Jenkins. How did you guys ever arrive at a movie playlist during quarantine? So we have not watched a ton of movies, actually. Um, at the beginning, we watched like some pandemic type stuff like Contagion um, <laughs> and other things. But uh, we have strangely been watching a lot of Survivor because it feels a little bit like that's what we're doing right now, you know, is just surviving and down to the essentials. And there's something fun about watching that. Uh, Yeah, so those are the kinds of things that we're doing, I guess. I I was curious to ask both of you, what what are the films you remember watching as a kid or as a teen that challenged taboos for women as you saw them at the time or made you think about how a girl ought to behave? I think for me, it would be Lorraine Margot and Lion in Winter. So Isabella Jani in Lorraine Margot. I think it's just one of my favourite films ever and one of my favourite uh, performances. And then Lion in Winter, Catherine Hepburn. And I think probably all of Catherine Hepburn. So it was Philadelphia story, even though actually when I look at it now, I'm like, this is a really offensive storyline. But, you know, still that kind of depiction of those unbelievably strong, mouthy women, you know, so Rosalind Russell and his Girl Friday, you know, those kind of fast talking, fast thinking. Um, it was it was always that and that view of female power and female intellect. 
my mum is a feminist. So, you know, she was very specific about what I saw. And it was it, it it was a lot of Catherine Hepburn. I grew up on those images of those 40s fast talking women. And so I think actually the shock was when I grew up and got into the film industry and then was like, oh, <laughs> where are these, you know, powerful women? Um, I, I think I think it became more shocking partly because I, I'd been raised to believe that it was another way. Funny enough, I was going to say the same thing. Philadelphia Story, His Girl Friday. I watched a lot of uh, Turner classic movies because during the summer when I would go back to China to visit my grandma, that was the only English channel that they had in China at the time. But uh, I think the thing that changed for me in becoming a director was seeing a film like Secretary. I distinctly remember seeing that in college and that was something I had never seen before because even though I'd seen all these, not a lot, but a certain amount, like you're saying, of strong, um, outspoken women, I had never seen women explore their sexuality on screen. That was something I found was uh, very rare and particularly in taking film courses, um, there was definitely not an emphasis on female gaze and female sexuality. Right. And that you're talking about the film with Maggie Gyllenhaal that sort of explores this S&M relationship between uh, a secretary and her boss. Yes. Kira, you know, you've made you've made a conscious move away from big blockbusters like Pirates of the Caribbean and toward films that reflect your feminist values, um, films like Colette, Official Secrets and many others. And you alluded just earlier to the fact that when you uh, you know arrived uh, into this new career as a young actress, you didn't find a lot of these Rosalind Russell characters that you hope to find. Um, can you talk about why and how you're choosing the roles that you are now? I'm incredibly fortunate. You know, I'm I'm now playing the roles that I dreamed that I'd be playing when I was a kid, you know, and actually a lot of the scripts that I'm being sent are the kind of incredibly juicy, really interesting, you know, multifaceted women. I think that's partly my age. I'm in my mid 30s. I still, you know, say I understand how unbelievably lucky I was to be in the position to get to to be in those incredibly big blockbusters. But it was never what I wanted from the profession. You know, it was always it was always getting to do those characters that are complicated and interesting and strange and and um, and sort of I don't know breaking some breaking rules. I suppose is a really boring way of putting it. But um, but battling against the world. I'm not a producer yet. Um, I think as I get older, yes, I'm more and more interested in hopefully championing more female directors of looking for characters that are interesting to me. And therefore, I hope other women and are portraying women in a kind of more multifaceted way. And yeah, I, I think there's a there's a power in the choice. You know, I've chosen to do that and not necessarily other things that may have paid more money, but aren't necessarily within my um, what I find interesting. Mm hmm. Uh, Lulu, you know, as a filmmaker, you've also been looking at unexplored stories and, you know, in your absolutely wonderful The Farewell, which I thought was incredible. You look at this young woman's ethical quandary when her family discovers um, that their beloved grandmother has a short time to live. So they don't tell her about her cancer diagnosis. And I understand that when you went to China to make the film, um, and this is based on your real life family story, your grandmother came to the set. And you had to hide the fact from her that the film was indeed about this dilemma. So I thought that was fascinating. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how filming it with your grandmother actually on the set affected either your storytelling or your feeling about the story. 
You know, um, back to what we were saying earlier about the films that inspired me, a lot of them were screwball comedies. And, you know, I feel like my family is a screwball comedy. And <laughs> it's one of the reasons I love screwballs. It's the reason I love my family. And I always wanted to capture that intersection of the ridiculous and the sublime. One minute they're making me laugh out of sheer ridiculousness. And then the next minute I'm crying uh, because I miss them. And I'm we're not always all together. Uh, and everybody's so different. And so I think that having my grandmother on set just played into the screwball element of it. It's like, of course, you know, it's it's so meta. It's layer on top of layer on top of layer of meta. Um, and I just leaned into it, you know, because I thought this is what the story is about, about how like we're all so tied together, but we're lying and we're hiding and we're we're in a small room and we're eating together, but we can't say the thing that everybody's and like my cousins literally sitting across the table from my grandmother crying and they're like, oh, yeah, he's just they're just tears of happiness. And she's like, oh, oh, that's strange. OK, you know, but, you know, and so then it's like my grandma's on set and the entire neighborhood also is there because we're shooting in her neighborhood. So they're all watching the actress Aquafina Nora playing me hugging the actress playing my grandma, her, and crying. And my grandma's over there being like, why are they crying? And we're like, no, 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 don't look over there. Everything's fine. And, you know, the whole <laughs> all her neighbors are out on the street watching this. And they're all crying, you know, because they're all too familiar with the scene. So I just looked at it and went, this is ridiculous. And this is what the feeling of the movie needs to be, that we feel how ridiculous this, but also how heartbreaking. I think that's the kind of authenticity that I fight for in my stories, is actually how do I make every experience this authentic and this terrifying? You know, like, in a way, it's almost like... I need all these people watching this to be crying, to be feeling this, these neighbors. We can't be this American production company coming into here and doing some quote-unquote Hollywood thing. So how do I imbue every frame, every scene with this kind of authenticity? Were you ever worried that your grandmother would find out through just discussions that the neighbors might be having or via the internet or any of the other sources that she could have? completely terrified. You know, that was a big part of it was both wanting her to be around and being close because I haven't been living in China since I was six years old. So it was very exciting for her that I was not only back and around for a few months, but that I was making this movie about her family. So of course she wanted to be around as much as possible and she wanted to meet the actress that was playing her. And so every decision I made was like, are we getting too close to the fire? Wait, but did she see the film? Thankfully, she hasn't seen the film. And the reason is, one, it came out in winter and it was very, very cold. And the family still don't want her to completely know the truth. Although she kind of knows now because she's read reviews of the movie um, that all her friends who were very proud sent her. Thanks. Um <laughs> <laughs> yes, I figured that might be a problem. Yeah, but but she hasn't been to the theater uh, also because then COVID hit. So she still hasn't seen the film itself. 
she understands that the family is keeping something from her now. So she, because she's read the reviews, so it's a it's a sensitive subject. So she doesn't really push and ask them. And I, I'd rather show it to her while I'm there, and I haven't been able to go. So. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you guys can each talk about the professional moment. Um, that has tested you the most thus far in your career? Ooh, Lulu, have you got one? If you've got one that you can think of, because I've suddenly I mean, gone I completely... I have so many. So <laughs> that's the... I'm like, which... Um, which is the winner? Which is the one... I mean, I've talked a lot about my struggles on the farewell of getting it made. Um, but I think that the hardest moment professionally was after my first feature, Posthumous, you know, I think I, I went into it thinking that, okay, I'm finally going to get to make a film. And once I'm done with this film, everything's going to go smoothly from there. You know, every everyone's just going to come knocking and I'll have a career and I don't have to freelance and struggle to pay my rent anymore. And so I really threw everything into this movie that I could. And I think I also creatively did make compromises that I wouldn't have as a second time filmmaker. You know, I fought in ways that I didn't fight for multiple numbers of reasons. And then of course, you know, I finished the film and nobody came knocking. Nothing happened in my career. Um, And I felt like I had, you know, just pushed this massive boulder up a hill and I'd reached the top. And now I had to go back to the bottom and do it all over again. And I think that was the moment where I really had to grapple with failure, you know? I mean, I think failure can be defined in so many different ways. The fact that we finished the film, the fact that my mother loves the film, which is, that's a huge success, I guess. Um, Exactly, yeah. uh, And a lot of people now are going back and watching it. But I think for me, having to go look at myself and say, what would I do differently next time? Will there even be a next time? And how much longer do I have to fight for that next time? Just that was really hard, you know. At some point, you kind of go, maybe I'm not meant for this industry. Maybe there's no space for me in it. Maybe I'm not talented enough. Maybe I just don't have what it takes. I think it's too easy to talk about, you know, quitting as in this flippant way. Oh, like you're just a quitter. And it's like, no, but when you've been working for 10 years towards something and you've literally given it your all, you have to also be realistic, right? And I have friends in that situation now of saying, I can easily say to them, you're going to make it. And they're like, but what if I don't, you know, and that's a very real possibility. And so I said to myself, but there's nothing, even if I never quote unquote make it, there's nothing else I would rather do than pursue and be a storyteller in some way. And that, I think that's what kept me going of saying, well, I'll find some way of getting my voice and telling my stories. And this time I'm going to fight harder to tell it in my voice and represent myself in the story. I think that it, from from talking to other creative people, I think, especially in the film business, that it's harder for a woman who may have made a first film to get that second film and that second project than it is for male directors who do a first project. I think on average, it's 14 years between the first film and the second film for female directors, Wow, which is insane. <laughs> what about you, Kira? What moment do you feel has tested you most professionally? 
the first thing I, I can only say about my career is that I've been incredibly lucky and I've been given incredible opportunities. But, you know, I, I came out of the my first hit, if you like, film was when I was 17 with Bend It Like Beckham. I filmed Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one when I was 17. You know, I did. I had this crazy run of, of five years between the age of 17 and 22 where I, I did Pride and Prejudice and Atonement. And I had this in, incredible run of success. And I was absolutely aware that I was learning my trade. But when you do that in the public, it's a pretty brutal place to do that, particularly if you're a woman. So my sort of growing up on screen and that sort of realisation of the kind of misogyny that existed in a totally worldwide way, both within the industry and, and within the, the kind of media industry and the portrayal of women and sort of suddenly finding myself right in the centre of that was incredibly difficult. I think maybe it's just the survival of it <laughs> that I feel <laughs> incredibly proud of and has been the most difficult thing. Because it is brutal for young women within this industry mm. being followed around 24-7 by packs of up to 30 men, you know, with their lenses through my windows and being called a whore every time I left the house in order to invoke a reaction because the pictures were worth more if I was crying, you know, or being forced off the road because it suddenly found that uh, there was a lot of money to be made out of car crashes. So you'd have guys with cameras trying to force your car off the road, you know. I mean, it, it was it was brutal. It was it was brutal. And trying to figure out a way when the as we're all experiencing now, you know, when the world goes insane around you, how do you keep your sanity? How do you keep, you know, uh, your your view of, of who you are and, and of what you want and what you believe is right and wrong sort of on the straight and narrow is incredibly difficult. It's a big thing to tell uh, late teen, early 20s if you're constantly hearing that you are just... You are just what you look like and, and you are only here because of that. And there's some truth to that as well, you know. But to tell that to a kid, basically, is is a very difficult thing to then come through and go, OK, I'm going to put my head down and I'm still going to I'm going to learn my thing. And I've wanted to do this, so I'm not going to let this, you know, take me down. Um, it is something I feel very proud of now in my mid 30s of actually recognising that time for it being as difficult as it was. And at the time, I think I just felt guilty that I wasn't feeling grateful <laughs> I can't imagine like going through that because I was uh both very confident and also wildly insecure uh, as a as a young person which many of us are you know some on on that spectrum I think that's mostly what young people are yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly and and being you know and dealing with body image as a woman in this society in general much less mm. having to do it in the public eye is crazy to me so I commend you on that because I don't know that I could survive that I think um, me not having had any success as a young person is a great thing my breakout film didn't happen until I'm in my 30s where I could actually handle that. Uh, and even so, spotlight, dealing with press, all of that has been really, really challenging for me. When you're an extroverted person and you're not used to having to like protect yourself because you are trusting the people who are around you and then suddenly being exposed, right? And um, and and there's like shame around it. Wait, like I never looked at that. And is it so a million things that I um, can't imagine what it must have felt like to go through. Um, I am very curious to know if, you know, you've had experiences on sets where as an actor, you don't have the control to change a story or a perspective 
but you felt uncomfortable. Like, how have you dealt with that? Because I've talked to actors recently where they're like, well, we fought really hard to change X, Y, and Z. And I was like, well, but that's not your job as an actor. Your job, you know, is actually to be given a, a script that is good and it's a true collaboration as opposed to you feeling like you have to save or fight um, the yeah. uh, creatives above the line, which is why we need similar-minded people telling the stories you know, behind the camera and in positions mm-hmm. of power as well as in front of the screen so that there yeah. is a clear communication. And so, um, yeah, how, how have you dealt with that in the, in the past? Well, I think, again, when I was younger, it was ju- I just did what I was told. Um, and if I felt uncomfortable with it, then I went, oh, I feel uncomfortable, but I don't have a voice here. So I don't. And as I've got older, you know, I'm much more vocal if I feel like it doesn't make sense or I feel like, you know, I, I definitely am now able to have the discussion. But ultimately, you're right. As the actor, you don't have the power. You know, you can have the discussion. And if you're lucky, you're working with collaborative people who want to have the discussion. And that's why they've brought you into the piece. But ultimately, the buck doesn't stop with you. You know, it's the director. And then really, it's the producers, the executive producers who really have the final say over it. Um, and I think absolutely to what you just said, when the Me Too movement was massively kicking off, uh, I think the discussion very quickly, as far as our industry went, also turned to representation behind the camera because there is only so much actresses, as lucky as you are, can do if you're not the producer, you're not the director, you're not the executive. And again, in telling female stories, that's why it's so important that there is more opportunity for more women in in those positions. Um, Because otherwise, you know, you can be talking to a guy and say, this just wouldn't happen. This is just not how I would do that. This would never happen. A woman would never do this. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's fine. Don't worry about it. (laughs) You know, and we as an audience look at it and go, come on, you'd never do that. But if you don't have the people there to be able to have those conversations who could understand that, then then it doesn't matter how hard you fight, you know, you, you lose. Yeah, and I, I imagine that's probably a, a big reason why you may be producing down the line. I, I'm seeing this more and more, and I think that's a position of power. Like, otherwise, even as a director, often um, I don't have that. I, I'm not in the room to talk about X, Y, and Z, like budget. No, and you might not have final cut. Exactly. And yeah. particularly, I think, with women, it's very difficult to get final cut. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're totally right. That is, I think, why more particularly actresses are trying to get get into producing is so that you can actually be part of that conversation again maybe not win those conversations but at least be there in a position of power that you can actually have that voice heard in a way that you you simply can't as an actor Mm -hmm. to that point going forward what kind of support do both of you think is needed for women's voices in particularly in independent film to thrive Well, this might sound crass, but I think it really just comes down to money. You know, everything is about financing. And um, when you're uh, getting a project off the ground and you are a first time filmmaker, I can't speak for um, the UK and the rest of the world, but especially in America, there's not a lot of government uh, funding. Right. And so it's very difficult to get somebody to give you a shot. And when you bring financiers on board, you don't get final cut, they automatically get a say in your script. And so I think that more funding is a way to help people, you know, get their careers off the ground, tell their own stories on their own terms. Yes, I would agree with that. (laughs) 
Kira, I wanted to talk a little bit about your latest film, uh, Misbehavior, about the 1970 Miss World pageant in London, which I understand is based on the real-life protest staged at the pageant by the burgeoning women's liberation movement. You've also uh, wrote this very compelling essay in 2018 uh, about your experience giving birth um, and the need for better representations of motherhood on screen. Uh, How did Misbehavior fit into that vision? The character I played, Sally Alexander, was a mother. um, And I think her daughter, I want to say she was either between five and seven. um, And she decided that she would protest the Miss World. And she absolutely knew that the consequences could be that she got arrested and could be that she was jailed. I knew nothing about the 1970s Miss World. I thought it was very interesting. It was the the burgeoning of the women's liberation. I also thought it was fascinating that it was the first year that uh, a woman of colour had won Miss World. So it was this sort of collision of uh, of the discussion about feminism and that intersection of of racism and, and opportunity. With the character that I played, the the dilemma that most women find themselves in if they have children of childcare, <laughs> uh, guilt about doing something like like working or protest, the thing that you feel could make things better for other people when you have a small person at home who is totally reliant on you and equally the pressures that it can put on a family when you bring in your mother or you bring in your partner for the childcare and how resentments can can kind of fester and how, you know, I mean, all of that kind of stuff that most working women, most mothers experience on a day-to-day way, you know, and yet is completely, mostly underrepresented on film. And, it, you know, it's done in a very small way in misbehaviour. It's, it's, not, it's not about that. It's, you know, but I love the fact that it was at least hinted to, there's a couple of nice scenes and, you know, we uh, with Philippa, the director, we both naturally totally understood that, you know, we tot- and, and the complexity of the relationship with the grown-up child and their mother looking to their mother to help look after their daughter, you know, that, that intergenerational kind of thing, which most mothers, if they're lucky to have their mothers around, um, experience in, in childcare. And yet again, you know, I think that, that maternal guilt that every woman who has a kid and works goes through, and it's powerful and it's painful wrenching. Yeah. And I think also, Lulu, you did that really well, too, where I think you showed the complexity of not just the intergenerational relationship, but the changing relationship between mother and daughter in the farewell and how, you know, the daughter leaves the U.S. feeling sort of one way about her mother and comes to understand her in a totally different way. Yeah, I just think those mother-daughter stories are massively undertold, you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, Lady Bird did it so beautifully a few years ago. And it really made me cry because I was like, wow, you know, the humour that you normally see between mothers and daughters, the unbelievable love and the unbelievable anger, it's there and it's rich. And yet still so few films are actually told about it. And you're right, I thought it was done beautifully in their farewell, multi-generational and, and, and beautiful. And Lulu, you know, I think what's interesting also in your films that you focused on mothers and grandmothers, obviously, as we just talked about, but um, as an Asian American, you're also looking at sort of the duality of culture, of living in two cultures and between two cultures. And I know that your next film that you're writing anyways is Children of the New World. And it's about, again, living in two worlds, but this time virtual and real. Can you talk a little bit about some of the themes that you're exploring in that film and kind of your interest in family dilemma and the duality of of cultures? Yeah, um, well, so I'm currently working on Children of the New World as well as a TV series in Hong Kong called Expats about three American women living in Hong Kong, which again is about 
living in the in-between. You know, we're in an Asian country, but we're dealing with three Americans. And one of them is Asian American, Korean American. Uh, one of them is Indian American. One of them is uh, Caucasian. And so I'm just so fascinated by what people project onto you identity-wise, especially this one character, Mercy. She's Korean American living in Hong Kong. So people, the first thing people assume is that she's a local and speak Chinese to her. And she says, you know, I'm Korean. Then they want to speak Korean to her. And she says, I don't speak Korean. I'm actually American. I was born and raised in New York City. You know, um, and so I think all of those layers of um, of just not fitting in wherever you might go is what I'm really drawn to. And um, in Children of the New World, which is still very early development, for me, it was this question of, you know, what is love? Our emotions, we might have emotions for something that like, the, the, so the premise is that they have children in virtual reality that simulates the experience of parenthood in real life. And there's a lot of ways that they can connect in that world, but that they can't connect in the real world. And it asks this question of, well, which one is more real? Because I think, especially now, all of us are having much more of a digital relationship and how much do we really need touch um, and sometimes these things we we don't even know that we miss until we feel it again. You know, like I remember the first time I um, touched somebody other than my partner um, after quarantine. It was just odd. It was like, whoa, you know, like I haven't I didn't even realize I haven't done that in so long. Or if you give somebody a hug um, and that's the kind of relationship I've had with most of my family in China all these years is, yeah, we see each other, we talk to each other, we catch each other up on things, but we're not together. We're not just being in a space. That's something I really miss is, you know, even though Zooms are really efficient, it's actually exhausting because you're not being, right? Every second you're like talking about something, you're not just being. And so when I was shooting The Farewell, like there's this one scene with Billy and her grandmother, the goodbye scene, and I wrote it 10,000 different times of how do they say goodbye. And in the end, I just decided it's they're not going to say a single thing. They're just going to hug and it's going to be the one of the longest shots on screen of just them hugging. And I'm not going to be afraid to let the camera linger. And I think the time itself that the camera spends on these two people where you're actually just with them in this frame of hugging for the actual duration of the hug itself. You know, people watch it at first and they're like, oh, they're hugging. Oh, they're still hugging. Wait, why are they still <laughs> hugging? And then they start crying. You know, and I think like that's something we can't underestimate is time and presence and being and taking our time with those things and having that time with each other. So anyway, so that's kind of, um, I guess, not necessarily related to your question of being in between, but I think that's how I grew up being in between and so many people that you're not spending that kind of time with. And I assume that uh, you obviously didn't expect that um, this kind of time would uh, fuel that story in ways that you probably didn't foresee when you <laughs> when you took it on. Absolutely. Um, Kira, you know, we were talking about, you know, greater representation also of women's experiences on film. And I was wondering whether, um, you know, I know that you have added a no nudity clause in your contract since becoming a mother. And I just wondered, because of what we've been talking about, our interest in sort of showing the breadth of women's lives, is, is that a decision that comes out of... Um, Vanity. <laughs> 
Um, you know, I mean, no, it, it's partly vanity. It, there's, there's partly also, it's the male gaze. You know, I mean, I feel like if I was making a story that it was, that's what it was about. And it was about that journey of motherhood and that journey of body exception and that journey. And I feel like, I'm sorry, but that would have to be with a female filmmaker. You know, it's not, I don't have a, a, a an absolute ban, but I kind of do with men. You know, I'm kind of like, I don't want it to be that kind of, um, you know, oh, those horrible sex scenes with the sort of, when you, you're all greased up and everybody's grunting. I, I'm not interested in that, in that view. I'm not interested in doing that. You know, um, and if it was about motherhood, literally about how extraordinary that body is, but how suddenly you're looking at this body that you've got to know and is your own and it's seen in this completely different way and it's changed in ways that are unfathomable to you before you become a mother, then, yeah, I'd, I'd totally be up for kind of exploring that with a woman who would understand that. But I, I feel very uncomfortable now trying to portray the male gaze. Saying that, there's times where I go, yeah, I completely see where this this sex scene would be really good in this film and you basically just need somebody to look hot and so therefore you can use somebody else um, because I'm too vain and the body has had two, two, two children now and I'd just rather not stand in front of a group of men naked. <laughs> totally understandable. Um, wh- what did you both think you would be doing right about now? What were you, had you planned to do right now? I was supposed to be filming in in and around London, um, and uh, yes, which would have been great. But I'm sure everybody's experiencing it in the same way. You know, you think you have control over things. You think that you can plan for something, and I mean, in the film industry, anyway, things fall apart every five seconds. You know, and and this this whole situation obviously makes everything even rockier. So, who knows? Uh, yeah, no, I th- I think I think a lot of people are are feeling that as well. What What about you, Lulu? Are you were you, what were you supposed to be doing at this at this moment in time? Same. Yeah, I was supposed to be shooting. I'm probably I probably would have been in Hong Kong already uh, prepping shooting and same situation. We're trying to get a scout um, underway, but with the borders closed and the quarantine days that you have to do, it makes it very difficult to scout, you know, Um, and the way that I like to scout, too, is. I like to get lost. I like to go to a place and I like to make... I've never, I've never shot a film, like a feature in the US. My first film was shot in Berlin. The Farewell was shot in China. And I love to make the setting and my living and breathing it part of the story. And the script continues to evolve as I spend time there. And I always spend a lot of time in the place that I... Like I hadn't lived in Berlin, so I went a year before we even started prepping. Actually, two years. I was like going there on and off and visiting and to me, that's just part of the research that go and ultimately ends up in the script. I like to cast real musicians that I might run into in a, outside of a restaurant, things like that, to really ground the story. And I'm scared that I can't do that now, you know, because when we go scout, it's like, okay, these are the locations that you're allowed to go in and you have to go as a pod and you, you can't really have this um, free yeah. exploration. Yeah. What do you think was going to be the lasting impact on your own creativity? This whole year has been stripping down to the essentials. You know, we talk so much about what is essential, who is essential, that I have thought a lot about is what I do essential, right? Because we haven't had it all year. We haven't been uh, back to work. And I... The answer to that is I I do believe that art is essential and I think that stories are essential. And so how do I contribute my voice 
to that landscape in a way that is essential, you know? And so I'm just much more thoughtful, even more than I was before, of um, my role in in an industry where 99% of the people don't look like me and don't bring the perspective I bring. And so um, I've thought a lot more about what is my perspective and how do I be more vocal about it? Because again, going back to like, in the past, I never thought of myself that way of like being, well, I, it was always just for like 12 years, like just trying to get a film made so that I could even be heard so that I could even have a seat at the table. And now I'm much more thoughtful about how do I not just have a seat at their table? How do I build tables? You know, how do I bring other people? And it's also all about community. You know, that's why what I love about the theatrical experience when I premiered the film at Sundance, like sitting next to people and hearing them laugh and cry. And that's what storytelling is about. And so how do I create more community around, you know, the films that I'm making, but just conversation in general of how we can all speak up. Because I've had so many conversations where people were like, where I've tweeted about something, I won't name anything specific, um, but people in the community texted and were like, thank God that you said that. I have been fighting this battle on my own for the last 10 years and haven't had the platform to say anything. And so I feel now a real sense of responsibility of like, okay, if I do have a platform, how do I make sure that I am voicing what needs to be voiced? And sharing it with with other people who don't have access to it. Exactly. Yeah, Um, what about you, Kira? I don't think I can add anything that, that, that Lulu didn't say so brilliantly there. You know, I mean, we need diverse voices. And, you know, I think culture is there for escapism, obviously. But mostly it's there so that you walk in other people's shoes and and you see the world through different people's eyes. You know, after the Second World War in England, the government massively put money into the National Theatre. And it was for the express purpose of foreign plays to come over here and that we could literally tread in other people's shoes to try and gain understanding. I think film and television has a massive responsibility to do that and to make sure that people feel heard and that their experiences are seen and valued. Thank you so much, Kira. Thank you so much, Lulu, for joining me today. Uh, It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, to get new episodes as soon as they're released.